Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, May 31st, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 17 to 26. The shame that Judah and Jerusalem will endure from the Babylonian conquest is so great that professional mourners will be needed. Yet the Lord still calls his people back to his steadfast love, to his justice, and to his righteousness. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharp Ryan. Thanks. Good to be here. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little context. We're at the end of Jeremiah 9 today. What do we know about the prophet, the surrounding text that we've got here, his ministry as a whole, that might help us with these verses today? Right. I mean, but as you've probably already seen, it it doesn't quite all fit linearly together. You know, right. uh, Jeremiah doesn't exactly have a, a really clear narrative storyline with all this. Um, but uh, but I think there certainly are a few things to uh, uh, to note. I mean, they are, are bits together. I think you can divide it into three sections. There's the section of mourning, like you mentioned already. Uh, and then the, we have this, uh, this bit of instruction about posting and then uh, this very strange oracle about the uncircumcised nations, which actually includes Israel and Judah itself. And so, but, I think there might be a certain logic to um, and, and a couple of shared themes along with the prior section. You know, at, at the very beginning of, of chapter nine, this long lament about um, about the people of Israel. And uh, so, if we'll notice, for example, in uh, in verse twelve, uh, it asks rhetorically, "Who's?" Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? And we're going to pick up that theme of wisdom again uh, in verses 23 and 24. Um, and then a little bit later we have, uh, you know, Jeremiah lamenting the fact that they've stubbornly followed their own hearts and, uh, and gone after, uh, the Baals. And, um, and so, but then later on, we're going to have uh, Jeremiah talking about those with uncircumcised hearts. And then finally, in, uh, in verse 16, we already had this, uh, this threat to scatter them among the nations, which is actually, a, this isn't even unique to Jeremiah. This is something, I think, is a, that's an ongoing you know, threat to the Israelites that is in many ways the very opposite of, uh, of what they've experienced so much as part of the promises to Abraham. You know, the, one of the promises to Abraham was to, you know, bring them together as a people um, and then, of course, keep them together, you know, as they pass out of Egypt and into the uh, into the promised land. But now this is in many ways kind of like the inversion of it. You know, you were once not a people. Now you are a people. Oh, no, now you're not going to be a people anymore. And so uh, so there's a lot of echoes of, you know, the Abrahamic and the mosaic uh, kind of promises that go along with this, they're being reversed. That may not quite ring in our ears as clearly, but I think it would have, it really would have, uh, it really would have stuck with the Israelites back then. So three main sections that we can see, again, a lament to begin, that's going to be the majority of the 
text that we've got today, although we may not spend as much time talking about it as the other two, then this matter of, of wisdom and boasting, and then what does it mean to be really circumcised? So three sections. I'm going to go ahead and read them all together just so that we can hear them together. We'll probably talk about them in that order and maybe try to to draw the line between the, the three if we can as we go. So Jeremiah 9, beginning at verse 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined! We are utterly shamed because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament, and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord. The dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. That's our text for today, Jeremiah 9, verses 17 to 26. Pastor Johnson, that first section, this matter of the lament, starts in verse 17 and goes all the way through verse 22. Just so that we have the right picture in our mind, Jeremiah is told by the Lord to declare this, call for these mourning women, these skillful women to come. What's the what's the practice that Jeremiah is talking about here? Right. This is actually a pretty well-documented practice. I mean, even even today, in uh, in places, at least in the Middle East, um, when specifically when a death occurred, I don't know if it was used beyond that, but I know for funeral practices, what you would do is if, especially if you had the money, you would go out and, you know, kind of like we, we hire funeral homes to like take care of this stuff, they would hire professional mourners, these women who would, and, and they were uh, traditionally always women, um, who would, you know, utter these really high-pitched, almost yells, these, these, um, these uh, sounds of anguish to really lead the mourners. Um, to, you know, originally when I heard this, I thought like, well, wait, so is this just, is this like trying to like stoke the crowd? But I mean, it didn't seem like this was a, this wasn't like a showy or ostentatious sort of thing. This was really to, to amplify the sense of, of sorrow for the, uh, you know, for the person, you know, who died. I mean, so, um, you know, it'd almost be like if somebody, you know, if you hired somebody to write a speech for you, if you didn't, if you felt like you could, didn't have the words yourself. And so, um, so this is, I mean, this is a, a dire circumstance. This is marking really 
uh, this is almost portraying it like a funeral. It really is. You know, Israel is going to die. Jerusalem is good as dead. Um, you know, because the sound of wailing is actually heard from Zion. Uh, you know, but it, but it's um, it's even amplified though because it's not like it's just limited to these, uh, you know, to these these uh, professional women. It goes in then in verse twenty, it picks it up again. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord. Um, teach your daughters a lament, and to each her neighbor a dirge. And so this is this is across generations and throughout the entire country. And so this is this is um, ubiquitous. It's everywhere. So the calling the professional mourners in to help is to indicate to Judah and Jerusalem what you're about to experience is death. This is a, right. a funeral that you're going to be going through. And then right. adding to it the, you know, teaching it to your daughters that this is this is going to be for not just for the mothers, but for the daughters, that this is an ongoing thing. I mean, we're talking, thinking, thinking historically here, the exile is going to be a while, in other words. Right. And, and that's precisely what um, both, well, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are given to us to prophesy later on, not particularly here, but we're going to hear this theme again, right? You know, when you get into the land, uh, you know, don't think that you're coming back right away because there were definitely people who thought, that, oh, well, this is going to be short-lived. He says, no, build houses, start businesses, you know, pl- you know, till the ground, the whole nine yards, because you're going to be here for a while, folks. So, uh, you know, it's like telling your kids, hey, make sure you bring something to do because you can make grandmas for a good long time. So, mm. except for this is a lot less happy than grandma's house. As, as Jeremiah talks about this wailing and the reason for the wailing, in verse 19, we hear the people crying out that they're ruined, they're completely shamed, and the reason that they give is because we have left the land, and they, I would assume that would be the, the Babylonians, they've cast right. down our dwellings. Why is the, the shame and the ruin connected to the leaving of the land? Right. Yeah, this is not a throwaway comment at all. Um you know, whenever we hear, um, you know, the Old Testament is replete with both promises, but also judgments about the land. And I think sometimes, you know, we as Christians, um, you know, especially in the West, we are so prone to kind of over-spiritualize things that we we have a hard time comprehending the importance of the promised land to the Israelites. But if, if we just go back through our Bible a little bit, we'll, we'll see that kind of, we'll get all that cleared up real fast. Um, you know, f- for example, go back to Abram covenant. You know, uh, it's, uh, there's, there's three major chapters in Genesis that all speak to, uh, you know, when God comes to Abraham, there's Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. And the covenant kind of proper is made in 15 and, uh, and then also kind of uh, re- uh, renewed in 17 as well. And it's implied already in chapter 12, even before Abram goes to the promised land, but then it's made explicit. He, he specifically says, you know, I'm going to give you the land of the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Jebusites and all those otherites, right? And then he reiterates that same thing. So it's, it is like, it's part of the, like the DNA of the covenant that it, along with that, you're going to be a great people and you're going to get this land. And so this is, you know, this is part of the uh, of the covenant faithfulness from the Lord, um, and so in other words, let's put it a little bit differently. Um, one of the signs of Yahweh's favor to them 
is the very fact that they are living in the land. It's a, it's a tangible, everyday sort of um, reality. You know, the Israelites would wake up. I mean, I don't know if they were. I don't know if they were really thinking this, but the Israelites could wake up every morning and say to themselves, oh, well, we know that we are beloved by the Lord because here we are in this land, right? Um, you know, this is the land he promised to give to our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now he's, you know, he's come through on it. That's going to be very important, by the way, very important when we get to that, that word later on, covenant faithfulness, or it gets translated differently by um, different translations. But the, um, but the point is, is that, um, this land promise then kind of continues on, of course, through Exodus. They make the journey to the promised land. But during the monarchy, we get these indications that um, this almost becomes a token, like uh, almost like a lucky rabbit's foot, like um, something we, they think is almost guaranteed them. Like, oh, yeah, well, we've got the entitled to. That's what I'm looking for. And it's almost entitlement um, in this way, um, in that uh, they think that, yep, yeah, well, hey, we're Israel. We're going to have this land. It's going to be ours forever. You know, nothing can possibly take that away. Well, they've almost forgotten the warning that they got right before they went to the promised land uh, in Deuteronomy 28. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to read it, just a, just a few verses from it. It says, uh, you shall be thrown away. Oh, so, sorry, let me back up a second. That Moses sets out these two stipulations. He says, okay, well, if you obey the Lord, you know, if you, if you walk according to his covenant that he's brought you into, you know, this, these are all the great things that are going to happen. But if you don't, here's what's going to happen. You shall betroth the wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face. It shall not be restored to you. Um, and the uh, and then it goes it goes on and on about about all this. But the po whole point is that it clearly you become displaced from your home and your land, even though it was yours. It now belongs to another country. In other words, that is the form one of the forms that judgment takes. And so when it says we are ruined because we have left the land, they have cast down our dwellings. This is the. This is the curse that was pronounced upon them back in Deuteronomy 28, other places too, um, for not obeying the covenant, not walking according to the Lord's ways. That entitlement mentality that you were describing concerning the land, I think fits very well with the way Jeremiah talks in chapter 7, where there are mm -hmm. people who are saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Right. I mean, we've we've got the temple, so everything's got to be okay, right? And and a similar thing, mm -hmm. I think, is is what you're describing with the land. We're living in the promised land. Everything's got to be okay. And I mean that that entitlement mentality is one of the things that Jeremiah has spent a lot of time preaching against throughout the chapters we've read so far, I think we're going to pick it up again a little bit when it comes to the matter of circumcision. This was right. the, the type of thinking that Israel was prone to fall into throughout her history. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a little bit like a manifest destiny, but I mean, I think I'm glad that you, you, um, you picked up on that because I think it's one of the temptations that we really need to see um, in ourselves today as well. Because I think it's very easy, at, not just for the Israelites. You know how easy this is to look back at the Israelites. Oh, look, they had the temple. And look, they had, yeah, they had Yahweh speaking to them. They had the prophets. You know, how could they have been so dumb? But, you know, we have, 
you know, Christ himself. We have the word made more sure. We have the New Testament. And still, I think we are prone to this temptation to, uh, to treat um, to treat the faith which has been handed down to us from the apostles as if it is something that we are entitled to. Um, one of my friends uh, called this once, uh, he called it, um, you know, in, in a non-complimentary way, birthright Lutheranism. I think it's not just Lutherans, though, who potentially suffer from this, but that I think we always do need to be on our guard and that Jeremiah offers us a really salutary warning that we would never take this for granted, that we somehow think, oh, well, I was born in the church, I was raised this way, you know, and sort of reward ourselves then with um, kind of a certain status as a Christian, like, well, the Lord, I know the Lord will always be with me because what do we fill the blank in it with? Because what? Because, um, you know, because I was born and raised in a, a good house. I mean, that's a blessing. Don't get me wrong. Or because I graduated from confirmation class or, you know, you, the list can go on and on. But if it's not Christ that we actually find our, our confidence in, I'm afraid that uh, the Jeremiah's words probably ring. Um, they, they hit pretty close to home then. I think this becomes one of the the burdens of Jeremiah as the book progresses, and certainly the the post-exilic prophets as well, is to how does the Lord fulfill these promises of the land when the people are out of the land? I mean, this is—I I, think—I don't know that we fully appreciate the difficulty that that was for the people of Jerusalem and Judah. How can— how can the Lord be true? How can God be our God when we're not in Jerusalem, when the temple's right. gone? And and I think what, what you're pointing us toward, and this is where it, it hits both Jeremiah's hearers and us today, is that all of those promises are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And if we if we fill in the mm-hmm. blank with something other than Christ, as you said, we're we're right. gonna start toward idolatry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, those are those are really fine points, and I've got about a thousand tangents I could go off of those, but I'm not sure I want. To, I'm not sure I want to take us all the way down that road, but um, but but you're quite right um, that I since we it's something very difficult for us to imagine the kind of existential crisis that the Babylonian captivity actually created for them because so much of their confidence was you know I mean, the kingdom of God they had really confuse the kingdom of God with the state of Israel. Hmm. And, um, and I think that bears itself out when, um, you know, for example, <laughs> I know this is Jeremiah, but I'm going to go ahead and back, go back and quote Ezekiel again, where, you know, the, the Lord shockingly reveals to them, uh, he reveals to Ezekiel that um, he's left the temple, but where does he go? He goes to Babylon, which is kind of a, a, a whole mind-blowing experience. And this is this giant paradigm shift for them, that the Lord would actually accompany them. That he's not tethered to the land, but that he's tethered to his people. And I think, you know, that obviously has huge implications for uh, for us as well, that when the Lord actually tethers himself to us, uh, that our confidence is not found in, uh, you know, kind of the... Um, you know, are other external signs that we might be looking for, but instead it, it comes upon, you know, comes really with our identity as, as a baptized children, because what does the Lord put on us in our baptism? He puts his name. That is, that is his very presence, you know, upon and in us. Hmm. And yeah, anyway. Well, no, I think that's helpful. And, and I would, I would say this too, that, that he ties his promise or he ties his presence to his word. And when you think about right. Jeremiah, 
at the very beginning of this series had uh, Dr. Lessing, and he, he, we were talking about the characters in the book of Jeremiah, and, and it stuck with me. He said some commentators would consider the word of the Lord an actual character within the mm-hmm. book of Jeremiah. And I think it's very appropriate because, you know, we do hear him say multiple times, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to me. And, and I mean, I think that that helps in, in what we're talking about, that the promises are tied to that word even when the physical location is gone, when the people aren't right. in Jerusalem, when the, they're not in the land, when the temple is burned down, what do they have? They still have the Lord and his promise. And and that's what ultimately sustains Jeremiah and the o- other faithful Judahites and Jerusalem, Jerusalemites, residents of Jerusalem, who, who do believe this word. It is That's what sustains them into the exile. And, and I'm, you know, Ezekiel, I think right. you're, it's you're, almost like ahead. the word of God incarnate. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yeah. He goes with them. Right. I mean, that's, that's almost like a, it, I guess it's, it's almost like a, a return to the tabernacle in that sense. You know, I mean, think right. where, where John goes at the word tabernacled among us. You right. The, I was thinking, I was thinking the same thing. Well, yeah. Cause it's not, so you, you thought dear Jerusalem and Judah, that, that the Lord was going to limit himself to this building here and to this land. Well, think back to the tabernacle that was mobile and, and what a, what a gift mm-hmm. that was. And now the word becomes flesh in Jesus Christ so that he is mobile. He, he goes with you with his, by his word, by his promise. Right. Yeah. That's really awesome. So uh, Pastor Johnson, before we leave this, this lamenta- lamentation section here, there's, there's just, I, I don't make sure we don't miss this imagery. Jeremiah throughout this book is just full of very vivid images. And this is no exception. And you're talking about some of the echoes to Abraham, and I think you also mm-hmm. said to Moses. And I, when when he starts talking about you know what this scene looks like in which these professional mourners are called, what this funeral looks like, he's got the you know death actually comes up into our windows, right? It enters our palaces, and and I'm not sure if this is exactly where Jeremiah was going with this, but my mind goes back to the the Passover and the plague against the firstborn. You read my mind. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm not yeah, the only so, one. So if, we, if we're wrong, then two of us are wrong. <laughs> Fair enough. So can you dig into the, the picture that Jeremiah paints there? Sure. I mean, it, it is really, really vivid. I was reading it in the Hebrew and it really struck me. Just, I mean, death is a, you know, we were talking about the word of God being a character. Death itself is actually a character, which is not a, an an unusual thing, but we're used to Paul talking about death as a character. Whereas Jeremiah is abundantly clear. I mean, you know, he almost talks about him like he's he's a marauder or he's a thief sneaking in the window, right? He's entering our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets. And so of course that's the part that I thought not only the you know the coming of death, but also cutting off of the children is all the firstborn children in Egypt. Um, you know, throughout Egypt were uh, you know were were slain on on Passover evening. And I, if I remember correctly, I thought there's even a reference to wailing in the streets um, in that passage. Don't quote me on that one, though. We'll all look it up later. Um, but I think there, there's also an important dimension when it says when it says children and young men from the squares that you know we might almost say not to sound callous, but we expect old people to die, right? But this is you know death is going to be it's not going to be choosing like just the frail among us it's even going to get the the children and the young strapping guys in other words the people you think would be most hardy and most invulnerable even they 
will be the, uh, you know, the victims of this death. And so, I mean, this is, and this kind of comes, you know, completes full circle, this image of a funeral that it's going to be, I mean, what's, what can possibly be more tragic than the funeral of, of a young person or even a child? I mean, so this really, is, it's just such powerful, powerful imagery. Um, this is, uh, you could not imagine a sadder, and more kind of tear-jerking. Like, so if there were, okay, so if this is all in a Hollywood-style movie, this is where all the strings come into play in the, in the soundtrack, right? I mean, this is like the saddest, most tear-jerking part of the movie, except there, there's multiple chapters of it in Jeremiah. Mm. Well, and I think, too, with the matter of the children, the young men, and then, of course, you know, the, the men who are in the fields. And, I mean, I think one of the pictures, you've got the palaces, you've got the streets, the squares, the fields. Right. That's pretty much everywhere, City, right. all walks it, of life, right? right. I mean, you're yeah. from, the, from the from the highest to the lowest, the kids in the street, and even the other uh, children, you know, and the and the ones in the palaces. And then also, not only the the location, but just the when it comes to the young children, the young men, mm-hmm. where where my mind goes, and and we've seen this other times. I think in Jeremiah, where he talks about husbands and wives both dying together. Generally, you would think of an invading army sparing the women, the children, the elderly. Right. And in multiple places in the book of Jeremiah, it's made clear that that's not what's going to happen, that this destruction that comes with Babylon is going to touch absolutely everybody. And I mean, when, again, when you have that whole scene together and you put it together with the Passover, the killing of the firstborn that happened in Egypt and the great wailing, I think, I think you're right that, that that's there in the book of Exodus, this great wailing that's going to happen. You can see why the professional mourners are needed. That's how how deep a tragedy that's going to happen at the Babylonian conquest that Jeremiah is describing here. Right. And verse 22 actually follows up. Um, I was going to say nicely, but maybe I should say poignantly on that, that uh, it describes, it shifts the imagery a little bit after death has, you know, had its way through the, uh, through the windows and the palaces. Um, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung on the open field, like sheaves after the rebirth. In other words, they're just laying there. Um, and it says, and none shall gather them. And if there's one thing that we see pretty clearly is to be to be left ex- for a dead body to be exposed to the elements and just left outside to be desecrated by animals or whatnot is one of the highest orders of shame. Um, there's any number of good instances of this. There's, there's one really obscure one with the one of the failed prophets. I'm trying to remember. I, I read it not too long ago in Bible class, and they were wondering about it, but the... Uh, he was mauled by, if I remember, he was like mauled by a bear or something like that, and he was left in the open field. But it was shameful, though. And then the guy went back to actually bury his body um, because it was so shameful that he'd be left out in the open. And so this is how shameful, this is how tragic it really is. There, uh, you know, not only will all these people die, but they will die and be, and their bodies will be desecrated in the worst way, being left exposed to the elements. I mean. It just it doesn't get more sad than this. That's right. Yeah, I mean we're we're seeing that that sadness of where Jerusalem and Judah have gotten in these days of Jeremiah. He's going to keep preaching to us. We're going to pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, looking at Jeremiah nine with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, May 31st. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 17 to 26 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. He serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we were looking at that first section of our text up through verse 22, this lamentation that's going to happen at this just funeral of Jerusalem that's going to happen at the Babylonian conquest. It's going to be a complete destruction. And then Jeremiah shifts gears a little bit, maybe maybe more than a little bit. In verses 23 and 24, he starts talking about boasting, and he uses three examples of people who shouldn't boast, and then says, this is why you should boast. There's plenty to talk about here. Any thought on what the move that Jeremiah is making between 22 and 23 is? Is there a connection that we can see? Right. You know, if there is a a really great, solid connection, I mean, it's going to take somebody wiser than I am, but I can take a crack at it. The the one thought I had was that perhaps, because I mean, it it's abrupt, you know, in the, I'm sure you've heard the phrase before, and now for something completely different. Uh, <laughs> and it does seem completely different from all of this, but maybe that's the point. So I offer this for your consideration, uh, that maybe it's, meant to be an interruption pointing out you know with emphasis it's almost like putting a giant uh you know the interjection but right into the middle of a sentence uh that whereas you know that that israel's plight is hopeless that you know they're good as dead you know it's going to be a funeral for them how terrible is this but but israel's only real hope in a you know kind of otherwise hopeless situation is going to be the Lord uh, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. And so, but we'll get to we'll we'll unpack all of those in a little bit. So, I, that, I mean that that seems reasonable enough that that it is you know here's a a glimmer of hope. We've seen Jeremiah do this occasionally in in his book, although it has been a lot of wrath and destruction. That there are these glimmers of hope, and to see this as he's got to keep us on the hook somehow, right? That's right. I mean, we're and it's going to get greater. That hope becomes greater as the book continues, and, and we can think of some of those passages that we know well, particularly chapter thirty one in the New Covenant comes to mind, or twenty three in the Righteous Branch of David, and so there there are glimmers of it here. Now the the theme that ties these verses together is what are you boasting about? And I mean, I think even that isn't all that. What are they boasting about? Well, they had been boasting about the land. Look, we're in the land. We've got the temple. So we're good, right? And Jeremiah said, no, you're not. Where where are you going to boast? That becomes the question. So help us into what Jeremiah actually says here in these two verses. Right. So I, I think he gives kind of a, a kind of a generic list, but it, it seems all very reasonable. I don't know if there's anything in particular historically we can connect these two. Um, you know, but he says, don't let a wise man boast in his wisdom or the mighty man in his might or the rich man in his, his riches. I mean, I think these are kind of stereotypical things that you would boast of. Um, I mean, you know, and they the nice thing is they apply to us just as well today. You know, people uh 
you know, they take great confidence sometimes in, you know, how smart or savvy they are or, uh, or how strong they are, you know, be it literally or figuratively or how much wealth they have. But um, I think this is, this is picking up on a very, very biblical theme that personally I just see like everywhere scattered throughout the, the entire Bible. And that is, um, in, in a way, it's, it's a variation on the theme of the first command. Right, you shall love the Lord your God with with all your heart, soul, and mind. Um, and uh, well, I'm sorry, you should uh, you should have some other gods before you know before Him, right? And so, it really juxtaposes the confidence that we find in ourselves versus the confidence we find in the Lord. Um, in fact, it really calls to mind for me, anyway. You know, the Beatitudes, because um, Beatitudes are always they're kind of funny. Um, you know, it's it's blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, blessed are those who mourn, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And sometimes these have been misread, I think, as virtues. You know, like, oh, well, it would be really good if you had these. Or I think somebody famously called them the B attitudes, which, for the record, is a terrible way to see that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, because really what they are is, I mean, in many ways, they're very almost embarrassing. I mean, that's probably a better way of describing them because to be poor in spirit is not something you want to be proud of. You know, it, it means to be spiritually bankrupt, to be the one who is meek. Meek is not a virtue. Meek means like you got nothing. Um, and so, so it's not like it's the Beatitudes are not, well, here's a list of ways that you should be. They're, they are literally blessings because the Lord says you know, blessed are, and they're the most unlikely of people. He's saying blessed are those who are already poor in spirit. In other words, those who, who recognize they don't have a spiritual life to stand on. And so in other words, this is the very opposite of boasting. It's the very opposite. Blessed are those who acknowledge the fact that they have nothing to boast of. You might, and you know, that might be like the modern Johnson translation here. Um, and so what he's really helping us do in the Beatitudes is helping us acknowledge the situation that we're really already in. And I think that's exactly what Jeremiah is kind of calling us to in for that matter, what so many of the prophets were already doing. Um, let, let me take, for example, um, John the Baptist, right? You have, you have this great contrast between all those people who are coming to, to, uh, to Jesus who are confessing their sins, right? They're mourning over them. I mean, this was really very much a part of it. Um, you know, uh, and this is perhaps, you know, I'm just realizing this now, perhaps this is the, the connection with the previous section, is that the, the prescribed response to sin in the Bible is always mourning. It's always having a funeral dirge. It's always weeping and lamenting over your own sin. And so it seems perfectly appropriate that if, if, um, Jerusalem and all of Israel is to recognize their own sin, that this is the biblical response, that they would actually mourn and weep and act like someone's dying because somebody is dying and that's them. I mean, you know, uh, that we take up our cross and follow him because uh, all those of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. And so, uh, so it seems all, you know, very appropriate in that regard. But this is almost like the flip side of it. He's like, no, mourn over your sins. Don't try to find this false confidence in your wisdom or in your might or in your riches um, because it won't get you there. Anyway, I, I was starting to say earlier, though, this is, this is a broader biblical theme. And 
I'm, I'm struggling to put one particular word with it, perhaps other than maybe lowliness, you might say. Um, or as um, Martin Franzman once put it, he, he was talking about the Beatitudes, and he said that um, with this, Jesus invites us to come into the kingdom through the low door of repentance. In other words, you got to duck your head. you got to go down on your knees in order to do so. The kingdom of God is not a place for those people who think they've, they've got something to boast and think they've got it all together, people who are proud and uh, you know, who can puff their chest out. But it's for the people who recognize already that they have not a spiritual leg to stand on. Um, so, uh, so I, I mean, I guess I, I'm, I'm, I'm re—I shouldn't say I'm reading a lot. I'm connecting a lot of things to verse 23. But are you following me on this? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a this is a very big biblical theme. And when you connect it to the first commandment, I don't think you should be surprised that it's a big biblical theme. The first <laughs> right, commandment right. is written all over the scriptures that you know there is one God. It's not you. Fear, love, and trust in Him alone. And and certainly, I, I think that this connects. And I think and, that and by extension, don't trust in your own wisdom right. or your or your or your might or your riches. Right, right. Because if you do, then the the only picture you have is what Jeremiah has already painted in the first part right. of our text. It, you're left with death. And I mean, in, in that sense, when with verse 23 following that, it's kind of like, well, of course, Jeremiah. You know, obviously, the wisdom of the wise didn't save them from Babylon. The might of the mighty didn't save them from mm-hmm. Babylon, and the riches of the rich didn't save them from Babylon. And again, maybe maybe to tie it to the you know the question we were saying, how can the Lord be faithful to His promise when the people are out of the land when they don't have the temple right there in Jerusalem? Maybe this these two verses is a bit of an already here at the you know in Jeremiah 9 is Jeremiah starting to answer that question how do you know mm-hmm. that the lord is the lord that yahweh is the only god when you're not in the land well you're you're not going to see it in your your wisdom in your might or in your riches but rather you're going to see it in the lord and particularly the lord who does three things the lord does right. steadfast love he does justice and he does righteousness in the earth. And I just to, to piggyback onto what you're saying about the Beatitudes not being things that you do, notice that, that what Jeremiah is giving us here isn't things that you do, but he's giving us things right. that the Lord does. Right? These, exactly, hey, exactly. The, the Lord's not telling Score you— Score one point for monergism, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, the Lord's not telling you to— or, Judah and Jerusalem, you need to do these things. He's saying, this is what I do for you. So that's enough for me. Take us into, um, we could probably spend, we've still got 17 minutes, but we could probably spend the rest of the time on these three terms. Let's let's talk about them one one by one. Steadfast love. Right. I mean, these are all huge biblical terms. They're kind of the trifecta of things. And so the only challenge is is that they're notoriously difficult to actually Mm. translate, especially the first one, that steadfast love. It's really three terms. Even though steadfast love gets translated in English as two different words, it's one word in Hebrew, and so let's start with that one. Um, if you want to know, it's it's chesed. So, um, for for those of a uh, Hebrew-minded among us, um, it, but what that means is steadfast love is a fine translation. But let me spin that out a little bit. It's you could some translations will go covenant faithfulness. And that's not a bad one either. Uh, unfailing devotion, um, but. At its core, it really communicates God's deep commitment to his chosen people, um, and it's in spite of what they have done. 
that's really the key. So, so there's always a mercy element kind of shot through in this. You know, this is not his, it's steadfast love. It's not, you know, it's not earned rewards. So that's always abundantly clear. Um, and so he, he, it's, um, it's one that is in it for the long haul. He never gives up. Um, he remains true to his promises, even when the people aren't. And so, you know, this is why it's always, I mean, uh, this, this term for steadfast love, steadfast should really be like highlighted or italicized because the point is, is that, you know, Israel goes up and down and up and down and up and down, but the Lord is always exactly the same, right? He's always good to his word. He's never going to give up. He's never going to change his mind. He's never going to, um, he's never going to go back on his promises, even when it seems like, and Try, you know, with this, we're, of course, we're getting plenty of times where it seems like the Lord has actually given up on his people. But these are the great surprises when they're going off into Babylon. It looks like they've failed. It looks like the Lord has abandoned them. It looks like the reign of God, you know, has basically been extinguished. But it hasn't. He's still good for it. And so, I mean, in this, this is a powerful, powerful gospel word. You know, sort of buried in this very, very judgmental, or not judgmental, but very, this section of intense judgment. And so, you know, his, his covenant faithfulness is something they can say, um, you know, this is, this is who the Lord is in spite of who I have been. And so the other great part of it is it's not contingent upon the fact that the Israelites have been faithful because we all know they haven't been. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it, it, it's, it's an unmistakably good um, proclamation you know, to hear at this time. So, and of course, this is where they're going to find their confidence because, you know, their confidence can't be in all these other things that pass away, but it's in the, in the Lord um, who's always good to his word. So the, the next term that Jeremiah mentions is justice. That's right. another key biblical, particularly in the old Testament term. What's, what's right. the Lord's justice? Yeah. But it, unfortunately today it's, it's particularly loaded. And so half of the, half of what we have to do is sort of, differentiate this term from, I think, a lot of the modern uses of it, which is not to say, you know, that's totally illegitimate. You know, the Bible, the Bible doesn't own the English language, so to speak, but we do need to be clear about the, the nuances that our culture may associate with the term justice versus what the Bible's actual use of the term is going to be. And so, you know, so for today, uh, you know, I think especially in terms of a lot of our, our modern conversations about justice, um, I think there's a strong connotation of like social equalization, right? We're going to level the playing field. Um, you know, whether or not that's possible, that's a conversation for an entirely different day. But the biblical concept of justice is actually in some ways much more straightforward, um, especially when it's being applied to the Lord. Cause you know, this, this is not a purely divine term. I mean, there's plenty of Kings who have, who have this term justice mishpat actually associated with them. Um, that, uh, that they can also exercise as well. But when the Lord does, there's always a kind of a, a heightened sense to this and that it basically means this. There is, um, you know, that right is upheld and wrongs are punished or wrongs are prevented. You know, it, it's, it's very, I think it's not totally dissimilar to what we think of the, uh, the modern, um, you know, the modern function of the judicial system, right? Mm -hmm. To, uh, to not only adjudicate who's in the right, who's in the wrong, 
um, but also to appropriately, you know, meet out the, uh, the kind of consequences for these things as well, right? Whether or not somebody goes to jail or, or has a fine or whether they get off scot-free or whatever else it might be. And so, but this is the Lord doing it. And so the great thing is that, um, you know, you can actually have confidence. Um, you know, you can actually have the, uh, the confidence because it's the Lord, like you pointed out before, it's the Lord who is practicing or the Lord doing justice. And so it may, maybe my favorite, you know, example is the one everybody knows from Sunday school, right? I mean, it's the classic example of, of Solomon with, if you remember the two women who come to him, you know, both of them have a baby and Solomon says, yep, cut the kid in two and you each get half. And, uh, you know, and then, and then the one, the true mother actually says, no, 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 give it to the other woman. And, and he, you know, wisely gives them what's right. He executes justice on their behalf. Take that, multiply times a million, and that's exactly what the Lord does. He sets all things right. He, he writes all the wrongs. And sometimes, um, sometimes when we hear justice, though, we do need to remember that this is not necessarily a bad thing. For those who have been wronged, justice is a tremendously beautiful thing. Um, it's got a sharp edge to it, of course, because if you're in the wrong, then this does mean, this does mean indeed punishment for you. But he's, he's the one who does justice for all of them. And as we're going to find out later on, much, much later on, Babylon's just his instrument. You know, he's going to do with them as he, uh, as, he, as he feels like. But his people, though, he's going to stick with them. The term righteousness is often paired with justice in the Old Testament, and there's, right. I think, some overlap there. How would you define the righteousness that God does? Yeah, oh, that, that's, a, that's a tricky one. That was the one I found hardest to kind of summarize in a simple way. But I can say most of the time, and I think it probably applies here too, is that righteousness, you might say, is is perhaps either the result of justice or feeds into it. It's more, it's more of this... If justice is the action, righteousness is the state, um, the status. Um, and so to be right is to basically have everything the way that God intended it. And so to some extent, it's, it's actually a much broader concept than, than just a legal concept, although it certainly is. Uh, but to have everything as righteousness really means that everything's kind of put back in the order that God originally intended it. And of course, he intends for his own people to be righteous before him, to not be sullied by sin. Um, but, uh, but of course, this you know, naturally leads us to you know, the entire conversation of righteousness in Paul. I mean, because you know, that's, where we, that's where I feel like we are typically, um, where we typically really think of this. Um, but if you don't mind, before we get there, let me jump, you know, because I, I want to make sure to talk about this a little bit. Um, I couldn't help, and I bet you probably couldn't help either. When, when we heard, let the wise man not boast in his wisdom, mm -hmm. I immediately thought of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, yeah. uh, where we have this, this uh, famous passage where Paul says, you know, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who's being saved, it's the power of God. And he says, you know, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And then he summarizes all that at the very end of the chapter. He says, therefore, as is written, let the one who boasts, right? You know, it's it's that same, uh, you know, it's the word Greek you know, rather than Hebrew, but it's the same concept. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it, it struck me that 
ultimately, the um, here Jeremiah kind of prepares us well for the cross. Um, I know you've mentioned earlier in uh, in covering Jeremiah that that the Christological, you know, the connections with Jesus aren't always as explicit, for example, as in like the book of Isaiah, where they're just patently obvious. But I think this is these are the little beautiful hints that, that lead us on rabbit trails all the way back to the New Testament. Um, so, in other words, we might ask ourselves, um, okay, well, so if we're boasting in the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth, when does he do that? When does he practice steadfast love and righteousness and justice? Well, most, first and foremost, or I should say most of all, you know, in Christ himself. Because it's, you know, in the cross of Christ, we see all three of those indeed, I think, coming together. Because on the one hand, it's, um, you know, his, it's his steadfast love. You know, Christ doesn't go to the cross because, you know, he, he looked down at us and said, oh, man, they, hey, they are trying really hard. You know that? And, um, you know, I think I'm going to reward them by sending my son to die for them. No. I mean, it, it says, Paul, St. Paul says, while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we all got it together. And so that's the steadfast love part, right? It's the one that does not regard the fact that we haven't been faithful to him. Um, and then next, righteousness or justice, right? Well, I mean, really justice is, you know, um, the cross is the, the apex of justice for, for all of the universe, really, um, because they're out there, justice is meted out on Christ, you know, in, in our behalf, because, you know, he suffers all the very things that we should have. I mean, this is kind of like, you know, Catechism 101, but it's not untrue uh, that, that Christ, um, you know, instead of us actually who should have been there, uh, on him is meted out all of the just punishments that we actually deserve. And so ultimately justice is served, but it's served on his back. And then finally, um, you know, uh, justification or righteousness, which by the way, in, in, uh, in Greek are from the same root in English, they're not, um, you know, uh, because of Christ's suffering, death and resurrection, he then grants us his righteousness. Then through faith, I mean, you got that great passage. We always hear every reformation day from, from Romans chapter three, you know, that there's a righteousness, not through the law, but it's through faith. And, um, and so that's actually where we receive our, uh, we will receive our righteousness. And then, then, in fact, actually, that's a great passage to bring up because in Romans chapter three, at the end of all that, Paul says, and so where's boasting? He said, it's excluded, right? And, and so we have, just like Jeremiah, I, mean, I feel like Jeremiah is the proto-Paul or Paul is just like copying or giving us the theological explanation to Jeremiah, you know, who's already laid all the groundwork for this. You know, what then becomes of boasting? If, if it's the Lord who does um, you know, covenant faithfulness and, and justice and righteousness in his son, Jesus Christ, then we got nothing to boast of, not our strength, not our wisdom, not our might, not our riches, none of it. It's Christ. And so in him, I will boast. Um, and uh, there's a Bible passage about that too, isn't there? That's, that's fantastic, Pastor Johnson. We got like four minutes left, and I, 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 I could say so much on that, but I want to make sure we talk about this last little section here. Verses 25 and 26, he switches images. We got the days are coming, declares the Lord, and he starts talking about punishing those who are circumcised only in the flesh. Can you draw a connection? And most importantly, what's what's the point of these last two verses here with about four minutes? Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so we had now now we have something completely different again, right? But I think maybe there's a there's a little bit. Um, I think that there's a possible connection here that just like Israel was warned not to trust in wisdom or power or riches or anything like that. Likewise, um, they shouldn't trust in the, the merely the external signs of the covenant. And I want to be real careful with that because sometimes I think ritual and signs sometimes get a bad rap, but, but I think the problem had become like so much of their life that the Lord had prescribed. I mean, you know, covenant, you know, circumcision was, that was God's idea, right? But the point is, it wasn't efficacious in and of itself. It was a sign of the covenant. It wasn't the covenant in and of itself. That doesn't mean the problem was with circumcision. The problem was with the heart of the Israelites, of course. But, so, um, so leading off of the idea that they were not to trust in all these other things, nor were they to trust in their own circumcision. But it is a little bit strange, though, um, well, hold on. Let me take a quick tangent here. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention when it says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. This is kind of a classic end-time kind of phrase throughout all the prophets. And so now we've shifted into this, well, the, the fancy term for it is eschatological, but you know that that just refers to things regarding the end times. And, and sometimes that's... Um, Sometimes the end of days actually comes in a little bit early, but it, it kind of blurs the lines between well, what is, what's the future, and what's going to happen finally at the end of the consummation of the age. And uh, so what we do is we have a little bit of a you know dual duty with uh, verses twenty five and twenty six. But for the purposes of the Israelites, the most immediate historic um, uh, fulfillment of this is going to be Babylon. It's going to be their their exile. And so I'm going to punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Um, now, what here's what's so interesting, though. Verse 20, you, you expect, or at least I would expect, he's just going to say Israel. But then he lists a bunch of other nations. He says Egypt, Judah, Edom, and the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert. Well, wait a minute. So, like, the second one, the second uh, nation is Judah, but along with all these other pagan nations. Well, what gives? Well, um, the best I could make out of this is that apparently um, the Israelites were not necessarily the only ones to practice circumcision. There is at least some evidence that both Egypt and Edom and the Ammonites and the Moabites also practice circumcision as well, not necessarily for the same reason, of course. But the point is, whether or not that's true, the point is actually exactly the same, is that their circumcision no longer differentiates them from the nations because they're acting just like all the other nations. They've become like the Gentiles. And so likewise, they will be judged just like the Gentiles as well. And so they can no longer claim, and this, this kind of comes, I guess it does come full circle, where they had this kind of entitlement mentality where they thought, oh, you know, the temple of the Lord and, uh, you know, we're the people of God and uh, we've got everything kind of right in order. This really finally is the last sort of linchpin in all of this. He finally strips them bare of even the last kind of vestige of their their false hope that, oh, well, we're the circumcised people of God. Like, well, nope, nope, you're not, because now you're just like all the other nations because you've forsaken the covenant of God. And um, to their <laughs> to their own judgment, they uh, they have failed and they become just like the other nations. And so they'll be judged like the other nations. Well, at least for now. 
That's right. And and Jeremiah's call from back in chapter four, you know, to circumcise themselves by removing the foreskin of their hearts. That's the real right. circumcision right. that the Lord right. is looking for. And and, and and I think is that again well, in thirty three as well? I yeah, it's it's a theme that, that comes Jeremiah he does this with the heart, he does it with the ears, that that's where the true circumcision lies. And of course that's that's pointing us all to faith, faith in Christ, which is what Jeremiah is is preaching. Pastor Jeremiah right. Johnson is the pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 17 to 26. Pastor Johnson, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Tim. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions or comments about Jeremiah this series, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or download the new app. Use the open mic feature to send up to a 60-second message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.